The news for the past week has remained intently focused on the situation that is ongoing in Afghanistan. Evacuations of foreign citizens continues. The U.S. has actually reported that the military has flown upwards of almost 90,000 Americans and Afghan allies out of Kabul in the past week alone. But still, the crowds that have stormed the gates of Hamid Karzai International Airport are teeming with frantic Afghan nationals desperate to escape the country that is now under the full control of the Taliban. But the crowds that are gathering at the airport, at least what we can see of them on TV, seem to be incredibly, notably male. But if the Taliban's history is any guide, it's the women and girls who need most to get away to safety. Politicon's guest this week is incredibly familiar with the human rights abuses of the Taliban in the late 90s. She's not only lived in Afghanistan herself, but she's spent the better part of several decades fighting for women's rights all over the world. Dr. Lena Abrafi is the executive director of the Arab Institute for Women. She joins me on this week's episode of How the Heck Are We Going to Get Along to discuss the ongoing threats to the rights of females in Afghanistan after the end of America's longest war. How are you? You've been very busy these past few days. Not at all. I I have. I, it feels like it's one thing after another, but this one has definitely been the worst. Yeah, you've got. You still have a lot of contacts and friends who are inside in, in on the ground in Afghanistan. I do. I do absolutely. In all no. parts, or and mostly in Kabul. Uh, mostly in Kabul, but um, back when it was safer, that everybody was quite spread out. You know, we we did have some good days where people felt safe to travel. Organizations were setting up offices around the country, different regions, um, even in pretty rural and remote areas. But those and you and you've spoken to um, most of them. Have you been able to get in touch with many or most of the people who you know there in the past few days? I'm still trying to track a few, actually. It's been really difficult. I mean, connectivity has not been great. Um, I haven't been able to identify their whereabouts. So I've got a few friends um, I'm hoping will resurface soon. Um, maybe they're in transit and trying to get and, out. But the ones you have spoken to, how are, how are they feeling about not just the general enormity of this change, but, but on the ground, in the moment, how are, how are conditions where they are? They are afraid. They are laying low, waiting to see what uh, might transpire. It's not clear. Uh, I think everybody's very anxious. People did see this coming, so this was definitely predicted. I spoke to one woman who was there who was able to stockpile food for a month because she figured she wouldn't be able to leave the house. And sure enough, for the last five days, has not left the house, uh, does not know if she can make it to the airport. Uh, others are saying the same. Uh, while the Taliban claim that uh, they would like things to be as normal, but you know, under Islamic law, there's a lot of ambiguity right. there. People don't know how to define it. They're extremely concerned, and they just don't know until there are some official edicts that are issued. Everybody uh, is living in in fear and in limbo. I mean, obviously, if if we look back to 1996 to 2001, um, there is a hell of a lot of reason <laughs> for people to be concerned. Um, you, you, have, you know a lot more about how, what went on uh, in Afghanistan in the, the Taliban's first regime. Um, 
what what was it like for these friends of yours who lived there at the time and and what types of things did they have to deal with uh, between 96 and 01 it was terrifying for them the lives that they knew before 1996 ground to an abrupt halt uh, they had to be covered at all times, you know, mandatory uh, wearing of the burqa. Uh, they had to stop school, work, uh, all aspects of public life, certainly no political presence, no women in leadership or decision making. Uh, women in economic life was very restricted. Um, a lot of women developed, uh, well, certainly female-headed households plunged into poverty. Uh, girls were not able to be educated. Underground schools were developed and networks and support systems even, that Afghan women and Afghan women's groups had to create to Even survive. freedom of movement, right? I mean, women could not leave the house without a male relative. Absolutely right. Um, so it was very difficult to do so. But at the same time, the Afghan women... Um, are so resilient in part because they have to be constantly throughout history. And so they were able in 1996 to alert us, the rest of the world, to what was happening, to show us the egregious abuses of the Taliban by smuggling cameras under burqas and exposing that to the world. So it's really thanks to Afghan women and using the burqa as a kind of subversive tool that we were able to really get a sense of what was happening. The first video footage that we saw from of amputations and, and, um, and killings in the stadium, for instance, those came from women. So when President Biden spoke on Monday, um, I think he it, it's sort of interesting to me as a you know, political observer. It's so rare to see Republicans and Democrats even come in this day and age within 10 miles of each other when it comes to any issue. Right. Um, but President Biden's speech had a lot of similarities to some of the things that President Trump was saying in over during his during his administration um, and that a lot of Republicans have said um, or at least a lot of middle American Republicans have said over the last several years, which has been, you know, we should not be there. Uh, we don't have a role there. Our, we should not be fighting a war that Afghans would not fight for themselves. Do you think it was fair? I mean, we know that the Taliban took over um, Afghanistan, province by province, city by city, very quickly in the month of June, right? I mean, they, in June and July, they really just, within three weeks, sort of went from having control over nothing to control over pretty much everything by now. Um, it seems hard to believe that an Afghan army that has 300,000 strong service members in it that have presumably been trained by the U.S. government, certainly been funded by the U.S. government, could possibly lose that much ground that quickly if they had actually tried. Do you think that it's, do you think that it's possible at all that they didn't try? Or, and if so, why not? Or do you think that that's not necessarily true? I think that they did try. I think that they were ill-equipped to defeat the Taliban. The Taliban is much stronger than people imagined. Uh, I think although there was two decades of training and investment that uh, I think people knew that they were still relatively weak. Um, and the Taliban's got a lot of power. And the Taliban didn't disappear in these last two decades. They've always been present and, and lurking. So, yes, I mean, there is there was always that fear. Um, and now with the U.S. withdrawal that happened so quickly, I think it was it was just dangerous. It was irresponsible because 
um, there was a clear knowledge that the Afghan military just wasn't up to the task and that this would happen and that people knew it. And, you know, I view things through the barometer of women's right. rights. Right? That's the work that I do. And women knew it and women saw it and women predicted it and they were concerned. Even though these last two decades they've come out of the house, they've at at our encouragement, you know, with the international community in full support to say, come out, um, assume positions of, of politics and, and, and power and public life uh, and be present and don't be afraid. And those are dangerous promises to make if we're not able to uphold them. I mean, I don't disagree. I don't disagree so, with that. <laughs> I think I think there would be, and I think yeah. I think I've, I've, we've spoken to people who would agree with everything you said, um, but at the same time talk about the mismanagement of the government of Afghanistan over the past, especially seven, six, seven years, especially under the most recent, we'll say, past president uh, Ashraf Ghani. Um, a lot of economic turmoil. A lot of. Um, uh, especially outside the cities in rural areas uh, where the government just could not control certain things and was corrupt. And, uh, and some people would argue that the current government, the current Afghan government, was not doing its job either. Would you agree with that? Again, I view all of this through the lens of women and women's rights. That's my work. But I would say absolutely that there was corruption. There was mismanagement. There was interference from other countries. Uh, there was also on the part of uh, the U.S. A, a lot of misdirected resources. Um, so I think there are a lot of ways to point fingers, you know, and I think that's that's the, the game that everyone is going to play right now. Um, but there are people's lives at stake. And I think right now the humanitarian response is absolutely the most important thing we can do. And we can spend years dissecting who is at fault and what went wrong. But things were handled in a way that was absolutely irresponsible. This kind of drawdown of troops happened so quickly, regardless of the um, of the state of the country and the, the promises that were made and were not kept and the foundation that just was not solid. Um, it was quite clear to a lot of people that Afghanistan would buckle and sure enough it has. Would it be an appropriate use of resources were we to determine that the only way, I mean, obviously we, a lot of people, most of us don't really know, you even said at the beginning of uh, when we were started to talk, we're still hearing these very ambiguous promises from the Taliban now about how women will be allowed to be educated, be allowed to work, be allowed to be a part of the government Under within law. our Islamic mm -hmm. belief system. Um, framework, I think, was a word that was used uh, quite a bit. And of course, every time the spokesperson said that, I wanted to say, and what is that framework? We see Sharia law in lots of countries around the world, and it takes on, you know, until just recently, women couldn't drive in Saudi Arabia, but in Iraq and in other places uh, in the world, it's much more, it, they, they still have Sharia law, but it's much more liberal, so to speak. Um, so we still don't know what the Taliban is going to do. Do you have any hope whatsoever that they, at the very least, might be better than they were last time? You know, I, I am concerned. And I think taking my cue from the Afghan women who are there, they are scared. And that, for me, is the most important message to convey. Uh, there's clearly precedent for their very conservative, fundamentalist, and, and, and violent and misogynist approach to women's rights. So, you know, for them to have rebranded or toned down in any way, I think would be foolishly optimistic. 
Uh, it is better, and this is what Afghan women and Afghan women's groups are doing, to prepare for the worst, to resume the activities that they had been conducting during the Taliban years, the underground schools and the networks and all of those things that they set up um, to educate girls and, and just in order to survive. Well, her, uh, schools in, schools in Herat, start all those kinds of schools things in now. Herat in the western part of the country, closest to Iran, opened this week and girls were still attending um, and still allowed to attend. Now, obviously, you know, I, I said to somebody earlier, they're do, very good at playing politician, the Taliban has been, and they seem to know what we want to see, and absolute power corrupts, and so maybe they'll be good for a few weeks or months um, or years, and we certainly shouldn't assume that they're going to fulfill all these promises. But for the moment, at least, girls in Herat are going to school. Does that give you any hope, or is it just a, uh, do you see it as a placating folks for now? It might be that, but there are parents who are afraid to send their girls to school. They're afraid of what will happen. This is an unknown situation. It's extremely unpredictable, and there's a history of violence. And to have a, a daughter, I mean, I personally would not send any daughter that I might have to school at this moment. I would rather uh, that we wait and see, because there is a, um, a fear of violence that is grounded in the history of, of abuse that the Taliban has inflicted on women and girls. So even that fear of violence, I would argue, is a form of violence. And that is going to keep girls out of school and women out of work and people and women and girls off the streets just about. So I went to listeners know I I was lucky enough to go to Afghanistan in 2007 with UNICEF. And and I have been looking all week at photos from that trip and kind of having my heart broken just a bit because, you know, one of the most powerful uh, visuals for me was, I mean, schools that were bursting open because they had previously been built just for boys. And now they had girls who were attending, walking 11 miles a day to get to school. And one school in particular that, of course, the girls and the boys are split up into separate classes because there is a, you know, that is a part of Islam. Um, But there was one particular school that was set up for young girls to learn to read and all of their parents, all of their mothers, sorry, had come with them because the mothers had not been allowed to learn to read yet either. And, uh, you know, of course, watching that, it very much breaks my heart to think that these these young girls in the photos I have are now, you know, old enough and older, you know, they know how to read, but they're the young girls in those areas may might not be able to have access to that. What what though can we do now besides because uh, I don't want I never like to be a defeatist. I refuse to admit defeat on anything. I'm still contesting idol. Um, but um, if you are if you're sitting here in America and you're seeing these things happen. And at the same time, recognizing that it sounds like President Biden is done, right? He, has, he seems to have not have any interest in backtracking on his opinion um, and not for going back into Afghanistan. It seems uh, if, if after 20 years, um, the United States was not able to push the Taliban out, um, it, one would question whether or not they'd be able to completely eliminate the Taliban, even if they did go back. What can we do to what can we do? Just tell me that like what, what, in your in your work as a, an advocate for women's rights and girls rights, what are you trying to do in Afghanistan now? Well, I started working on Afghanistan out of Washington, D.C. in 1996. I moved there in 2002. I stayed until 2006. 
I did my doctoral research on the country. I wrote a book on it, and I published that book in 2009. And I never looked away from Afghanistan, even as I went on to 20 other countries for humanitarian work. Afghanistan is one of those places that is uh, quite particular. Um, first of all, it really has a hold on you. For me, it's a very special place. But the women are extraordinarily strong. And I was always in awe of how articulate they were, how much agency they had, how clear they were about their rights and their needs and their demands. When I moved in 2002, and I'm not Afghan, they sat me down and said, listen here, you want to help us? Here's what you're going to do. And I loved that. And that set the tone for me for my entire engagement with the country because I took my cue from them. And that is what we need to do again. Because what they are saying is we need to support the local Afghan women's groups who were doing the work before we ever got there, before most of us ever heard of Afghanistan. These are the ones that are going to be doing the work long after everybody's gone, the Americans, the international community, whoever. They're the ones who are on the ground, underground, doing the really, really hard work to sustain things. And I think those are the ones that need the What most are the support. types of things that they are support doing? Support for them has dwindled. Well, it is the underground school network that is going to be reestablished, the ones that were active prior to um, 2001, so during the Taliban years, uh, how to make sure that girls were still educated. And you have said yourself, it's a very high population of uh, illiterate women and girls. And that was starting to change, you know, at... Up until a few weeks ago, 40% of girls were in school. That could change. So what are we going to do about that? Why we're just 40? Generation, once Why again. just 40? Are there, are, are there people who live in Afghanistan who still, even without the government telling them that girls can't go, who still are there still 60% of Afghans who don't believe girls should be educated? It's a very rural population. So there's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of issues of access. And these things take a long time. You know, you cannot just instantly expect that you open a school and everybody's going to come flooding the gates. This takes a lot of time. And it is um, girls are being educated at an elementary level, at higher levels. Universities opened up in Kabul. But what happens in Kabul and the major cities is not necessarily the same thing that happens in rural areas. And that is true for the U.S. as well. I mean, we're a very diverse country with extreme differences in our perspectives on women's rights in capital cities and in rural areas. So it's understandable in a place like Afghanistan as well. There are a lot of rural, hard to reach areas. And it's, it would have taken so, but a is long that time. Really, is, that the, is that the primary reason that these 60% of girls are not going? Or is there a, I mean, I, I, I recognize that obviously the Taliban enacted in its first regime at a ridiculously absurdly strict um, version of interpretation of Sharia law, um, and that even fellow Muslims would disagree, would Sunni Muslims would say is far too strict. Um, and we see that in other countries around the Middle East and, the, and in Southeast Asia and parts of Central Europe. But do we, but even without the Taliban's incredibly conservative interpretation of Sharia, Afghanistan is still a conservative country. Islam is still a conservative, ha, has a lot of conservative adherents, especially in Central and, and Western Asia. Are there, are there issues culturally that are keeping women oppressed just as much as the Taliban? I mean, if the Taliban had not taken Kabul yesterday, this past weekend, the past 20 years, you're saying that only 40% of girls were attending school. That means that there's a problem beyond simply the Taliban. Is that right? 
culturally there's an issue? There, there is, first of all, there's still a lot of fear. The Taliban were present, as I said. So there is uh, that concern as well. Uh, there's accessibility. There is distance to and from school. There's the economic cost. Uh, there is religion at play for sure, cultural issues, conservative values. So it's it's a broad right. range. I guess of I'm issues. just there are a lot of disconnects. I guess I'm and, and God, the last thing I'm going to do is is task. defend the Taliban ever. <laughs> but but I'm, I guess I'm saying these issues of women's rights are present in Afghanistan, Taliban or not. They're present in in other parts of Central Asia and West Asia, Taliban or not. Um, is that not is that not right? I mean, even even in South Asia, in India and Pakistan, you see some of these same restrictions on uh, women's rights. I mean, you've you've worked in countries beyond Afghanistan, correct? So this isn't just yes, a this correct. is not simply an Afghanistan problem. It's not simply a Taliban problem, correct? Correct. Well, well, the Taliban themselves are born in Pakistan, so there's also a lot of conservative values there. You mentioned Saudi Arabia, another country. There are many, many where there are obstacles to women's rights. In fact, there is no country in the world that has achieved full equality for women. I mean, we're still fighting for rights to bodily autonomy and integrity here in the U.S. So you can imagine this is not a quick fix. And there is a lot of resistance to it. And so much of this plays out on women's bodies and women's lives. So Afghanistan, unfortunately, has a more has greater challenges, but this is not unusual and it happens. And I've seen it everywhere. And especially in times of conflict and insecurity, all of those pre-existing vulnerabilities that women and girls have, those inequalities are magnified, are amplified, are made so much worse. So we see less girls in school, less women in office, in the market, on the streets, in public place, in the workplace. Um, we see increased forms of violence against women. All of those things happen, unfortunately, everywhere. And we see it play out time so, and again. So, I mean, today is, today is World Humanitarian Day. So this conversation is very present because we are talking about what happens to women and girls in humanitarian settings. And it's precisely right, that. So why, why do we not send the same amount of resource um, that we sent over the past 20 years from the U.S. to Afghanistan. We all recognized going in, yes, we wanted to fight terror. Yes, we wanted to get rid of, find Osama bin Laden and find the people who, who attacked us on September 11th and rid ourselves of the Taliban. But the images um, that resonated with Americans in, 20, in 2001 and two and three, et cetera, for why the Taliban was so awful and horrible, what Americans remember about the Taliban is less, oh, well, they protected terrorists, um, and more, they made women wear burqas. You know, we're a visual society. We think of these things. What people in America remember is the Taliban used to kill women if their husband cheated on them. The Taliban used to stone them for this, that, or the other. The Taliban did not let them leave the house. We think about the fact that girls weren't allowed. And a lot of the ups, a lot of the fury from Americans over the past few days since um, this past week since the Taliban came back into Kabul has been over the rights of women and girls to not be educated, the human rights that they will lose. Um, granted, a lot of Americans didn't pay too much attention to Afghanistan for the past twenty years and simply wanted to get out of it. But now we're seeing this, you know groundswell for the last week or so of support for how awful the Taliban treats women and girls. Why don't we have that same sort of 
anger? And why don't we send that same amount of resource from the U.S. to Sudan or to Central African Republic or to the Sahel or to any of these other countries where they are, you know, mutilating girls um, as part of their cultural norms. I mean, why are we so damn upset about the women and girls in Afghanistan, but we don't seem to give a shit about the women and girls in dozens of other countries where they are not, um, where they're not treated fairly? You're right. And I've worked across all those countries in Congo and Central African Republic, across the Sahel, in so many different places. But I can tell you this, that women programs for women and girls and support is always underfunded, no matter what the rhetoric is. There is a lot of language and a lot of promises made. But if you look at it dollar for dollar in every humanitarian emergency, women and girls get the least amount of funding. And if we were more angry or if we were having more conversations about Afghanistan, it was a, a post 9-11 um, Anger that, and it was directed against um, a terrorist. Right, because we didn't necessarily so care about, about the women and between 1996 and 2001. We didn't care about it then. Correct. So, so, but what? what why is it not paid attention to? You talk about Congo. You talk about all the. I mean, you, the, you could list the number of countries in parts of Africa, not all parts, but sections yes. of Africa that are just as brutal, if not more so, in some places to, to women and girls. Why do we not talk about it? I know it's underfunded. I get the facts that you're telling me. What is the reason we can't get people to pay attention to it? I think people are concerned that it's just too hard or not their problem or they don't want to tread on other cultural ground or they don't know how to handle it. I think these things are just so complex and require long-term investment and commitment and resources and and, and people and understanding. Ooh, spent 20 years in Afghanistan for it. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That, you know, you're asking a question I ask myself all the time, having done this work for over two decades and trying to make miracles out of uh, scraps. I ask myself constantly why people don't care enough, where the money is, where are the resources, where's the attention. It is hardly ever there. It does not even come close to scratching the surface when it comes to the needs of women and girls. And I think people just shrug their shoulders and say, okay, well, that happens over there, but that doesn't happen here. And part of what excuses people, I think, is the idea that, well, that's Afghanistan or, you know, that's Iraq or that's Congo or that's Central African Republic. And they other that kind of violence without noticing that that's happening right here, right now, everywhere. When we talk about violence against women, the statistic is staggering. It is one in three women and girls worldwide. The U.S. is no exception. We are not free from violence against women here at all. I mean, look at how we dealt with COVID, a global pandemic, and the rates of intimate partner violence went through the roof in the U.S., and in every other country. So again, the idea that we just don't, we don't want to see it. We don't know what to do with it. We don't pay attention. We shrug and say, we can't fix it. We dismiss it like it's somebody else's problem. There are all of those reasons all tangled up. And this continues virtually unabated. And for me, the continued existence of violence against women is the most egregious form of violence. And it's the greatest crime of our time. And if we still can't manage that, I, I don't know how we're going to fix anything. Are else. there any success? And we can't even manage it right here. In our are own there house. any success stories that you that you are proud of or or look to for hope in your time working for you know women's rights around the world? Are there are there countries that have made substantial change? Don't use Saudi Arabia allowing women to drive. I think that's a small step, but um, for them they have more to do. But are there are there places or stories that you look to for hope because you realize that some changes have been made that are positive? 
you know what it is? It's the individual stories. It's anecdotal um, evidence. It's the idea that that one woman's life was changed because she participated in a program, got off the streets and into vocational training, learned a skill, got a job, made money, got herself out of the camp or out of a, a position of vulnerability or out of a situation of violence. Have no countries uh, changed laws? When I moved into have no countries other than that one? Yes, absolutely. What, what, what laws have been changed that you can think of? I know I'm try- not trying to put you on the spot, but I'm curious as to what types of legal legislative process has been made in some of these far more conservative places, um, other than the, the few examples, like I mentioned, in Saudi Arabia. Have there been legislative changes that you look to as, okay, look, see, we are making progress in some places? I wouldn't say the legislative changes are progress per se. I think they're very important, but what's on paper doesn't necessarily translate into practice. So things like domestic violence legislation has increased in many countries. I I spent many years in Lebanon. Lebanon now has domestic violence legislation. So the idea that these kinds of things are happening is critical. It is very important. I'm not going to dismiss the impact of legislation, but does that change behavior? Well, that takes a very, very long time. So I would not look at the existence of laws and say that has been a victory and my job is done. In fact, we need to work at all levels, at the very grassroots level with individuals and families and communities and cultures and religions and all of it, and at the level of policy and legislation, for people to understand that these are, this is now, this is not acceptable, and this has to change. And that change takes a long time. Again, even in the states, we're quite new to domestic violence legislation. We're quite, we are hardly understanding what it means for women survivors of violence to access justice. We know far too many cases where that hasn't been the case, where women try and, even when there is legislation in place, try and access justice, try and um, uh, and get what is what is due to them, but end up completely revictimized by the courts or by by security or by other systems that work against them. And that's here in the U.S. too. So we have a long way to go. And whatever's on paper is a good start, but it is a starting point and not the end game. Um, we, had a lot of, we had a lot of people who knew you were coming um, onto the show this week and sent in questions specifically for you. They, a lot of them are very Afghanistan-centric um, since you spent, uh, some, spent time there, know what's going on there better than a lot of folks do. Um, Marcus from Tempe. I'm sorry. Yes. Netta from Houston, sorry, Marcus, Netta from Houston, Texas, asks, a whole generation of Afghan women had a chance at an education. Do you think they'll propose a problem for the Taliban? Absolutely. I think they will. I think they'll fight. They're not going to give up all their uh, their knowledge and their rights. Those things don't go away. You don't get a taste of freedom and then surrender it so quickly. Everybody everywhere, and Afghan women are no exception. In fact, they're a great lesson to learn from. They will fight for the freedom that they have worked so hard for over these last two decades, their rights in the Constitution, their access to schools and public places and public office. Uh, We have 28% of Afghan women in the parliament, in the Afghan parliament. That's more than we've got in the States. They're not going to give that up and walk away and surrender without a fight. Absolutely not. That is what they did during the the time that the Taliban was in power, 1996 to 2001, uh, they continued fighting. They did so underground. They refused to give up, and they will do that again. I have no doubt. They're already rallying around that. That's what they're fundraising for, amongst other things. Okay, I'm going to go to Marcus from Tempe's question now. He asked, the Middle East seems to be changing with countries either moving rapidly towards moderation or rapidly towards radicalism. What's the difference between the two? (laughs) <laughs> like why, why, are, why are some countries becoming more uh, moderate 
at the same pace as others are becoming more radical. He doesn't give me examples, but I'll I'll let you come up with some if you can think of them. <laughs> sure. I mean, I think there's always this kind of push pull. You know, again, it is. I think it's very easy to say, well, this is just the Middle East. And I, and I worry that we kind of other these things and act as if these things don't happen right here in our backyard. You know, in the U.S., we've become more conservative. We had a, a rather conservative president and we lost a lot of our rights to our own bodies and lives as women as a result of that. So there was a constant push pull. It is not, a, you know, conservative or liberal and and that's it. Those are really broad generalizations and they're somewhat dangerous to make. I think there are always people on the ground who are pushing for um, a modernization of values. And there is a counter to that. And sometimes the stronger you push for those things, as we have seen just about everywhere, the bigger the backlash, the greater the risk. Conservative elements do not stay quiet. You know, we have it here. I worry constantly as an American woman about my reproductive rights that are treated like a light switch on and off, depending on which man is in power. And Countries in the Middle East, in, in South Asia, African countries are no different. Women's rights are constantly played with like a light switch. That is very dangerous. We see it all the time. But there are people who are fighting to change that. And that fight is going to take a very long time. We are still fighting for it here. Okay, last uh, from... And you can't take those things for granted. And I find that to be one of the most frustrating aspects of existing in a female body, that you cannot ever take your rights for granted. You have to constantly be vigilant and fight for them all the time. Okay, last from, last one it's from exhausting. the listener. Jason from San Francisco yeah. wants to know, and this is the very the most important one, to be honest with you, what can we do to support women and girls in Afghanistan? And I'll, and I'll add to Jason's question and just say, and in all the other, these other countries. Um, what, what can folks here do? Um, tell us about exactly the work you're doing specifically and how it can be supported and we can support it. Um, and just in general, what we can do from home. Thank you for that question, actually, because that is my favorite one. I would have ended with that one anyway. But the message is this, that there are women's groups in every country I've ever worked in, and Afghanistan certainly is no exception, on the ground or underground, like I said, and they are fighting and they're advocating and they're pushing for change, and they're the ones who will succeed. They will make it happen. So when they say we need support, resources, supplies, we our job is to listen to them because those are the kinds of movements that are indigenous to whatever country and they're the ones who will succeed. They know the context the best. They know what the needs are. They're the country's social safety net. They keep things going for, for women, for girls, for everybody, for their families, for men as well. So the idea that we need to listen to what they need and, and step up and meet those needs right now is more urgent than ever. And for Afghanistan, Afghan women's groups have been putting out the call far and wide. You know, what I want to say is this. What is different about this uh, Taliban uh, control versus the previous is that we've got the power of social media now that is much stronger than it was before. You can put out tweets or, or, or whatever it is and say, here's what we need. Here's where you got to send it. Here's what, what you should do. And people will rally around that. So I would say, first of all, listen and learn. Pay attention to what's going on. Listen to the views of Afghan women or the women who are implicated in that reality. They'll tell you exactly what they need. So listening is the first step, really educating yourself on what the context is, why these kinds of things happen, understanding also that any country can be in Afghanistan. This happens everywhere all the time. Uh, so be vigilant about our rights, but then provide the support and resources as dictated by those women, because they are going to put it to good use in ways that are extraordinary 
extraordinary and powerful and meaningful, and that's where the change is going to happen. That's always been the case. Specifically, how can what what is there a website specifically that you, that we can go to to access information about what you are working on and and the uh, the organizations, maybe some of these women's organizations on the ground that you know are good and we can support. Absolutely. I've been tweeting about this nonstop since um, for the last one week. So there are organizations that are like Afghan Institute for Learning, Women for Women International, the organization that I set up in Afghanistan. Actually, I was the country director of their Afghanistan office, Women for Afghan Women. All of those links are being updated and they're on my Twitter. So if anybody is able to to follow me and track me there, I will continue to transmit any of the information I receive, firsthand accounts, uh, needs and um, places to direct resources. And we'll put it in our show notes anyway, but tell us what your Twitter is. Tell everybody where to how they can find you on Twitter. We'll have it on the link for, for them still, but just tell oh, us. Oh, it's Lina Abarafi. L-I-N-A-A-B-I-R-A-F-E-H. Okay. Thank you so much for being here and talking about this and for Thank the work you. that you're doing right now, because I know this has got to be an incredibly busy and stressful time for you, knowing so many people on the ground there. So we are, uh, we are all have our thoughts and prayers and with everyone who's there and, and with folks like you who are really getting on the ground and doing the work to make people, keep people safe. So thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you for shining a spotlight on it and for using your platform for such great causes.